0: Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacy LeBaron. I've been involved with helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The purpose of this podcast is to expose you to great people who are helping cats daily, and hopefully, you may learn a little bit more about what you might do in your community. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Hess. Sarah has more than 25 years working in the animal welfare arena. She started with the League of Animal Welfare in Batavia, Ohio, a limited admission shelter, and then was a founding member of the United Coalition for Animals, UCAN, which opened an affordable spay-neuter clinic in 2007. Sarah was the executive director of UCAN to get the clinic open and running successfully. After working with Humane Alliance's new clinic mentoring program, and with you can she then moved to Asheville to manage that program. Sarah currently works part time as the grant manager for two mods and various consulting projects, including six months as the interim executive director of the Asheville Humane Society. She lives in Asheville with her husband and daughter and a menagerie of animals. I'm assuming there are a few cats in there, probably. So I'd like to welcome Sarah today. Thank you so very much for uh, being on the show. Glad to be here, Stacy. Thank you. We're going to dive into our questions, and my first question is. Wondering, as a cat lover and 25 years ago and maybe even beyond that, how did you get started in this business? Uh, it was luck, I suppose. I started
1: volunteering at um, the League for Animal Welfare, which is just outside of Cincinnati. Uh, I had seen a newsletter in my veterinarian's office and thought, oh, you know, I'll go check it out. It was near my home. So I started as a volunteer and then, like like many folks, ended up on the board of, di- the board of directors, which was very volunteer intensive at the time, and just stuck with it. And then all of a sudden, all of my free time I spent at the shelter and then all of of a sudden, the light bulb kind of went on, and I thought, "Gosh, there are actually people that can can eke out a living in this humane field," and um, never looked back after that.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about some of the highlights that you've had so far over the last twenty five years?
1: That's a really interesting question. I you start in sheltering, and and I think it's very easy to get into a rescue mindset of "got to rescue this one," and then there's another one that comes along, and and depending on where you live and the circumstances it's a never ending call for rescue and one of the biggest aha moments i had kind of early in my career was this idea that you're you're bailing a ship with a cup of water if if all a community is doing is focusing on rescue because it's not doing anything to slow down the the cats and the kittens and the puppies and the dogs coming into the shelter system so when um, a few of us put together the United Coalition for Animals and started looking at this idea of affordable spay-neuter for the greater Cincinnati area, you know, it was like, this just makes a ton of sense. And it, it wasn't that rescue isn't worthwhile, but got to have somebody providing those services so that the folks that are doing rescue in the shelters can manage and better deal with the animals that are coming in the door. You got to slow down the intake in order to, um, to save them all.
0: So you sort of looked at the situation from an analytical level and the aha moment was realizing that really the spay neuter aggressive spay neuter right. was the step to take for action to help reduce the overpopulation right. problem that you had at the shelter.
1: Exactly. I mean, I was I would have been rescuing animals until, you know, I had one foot in the grave and as was everyone else that was doing rescue, unless we were able to dig into the to the overpopulation in our community, and take some preventative measures. And it just made a lot of sense, kind of an analytical, a business sense that you just. You, there's no way to possibly rescue every animal that was coming into the shelter sheltering systems in Cincinnati at the time because there were too many. And so by taking a step back out of rescue and jumping into high volume or affordable spay-neuter just made a ton of sense. And and it made a lot of sense for Cincinnati. It makes a ton of sense for many communities around the country, especially for cats. But um, jump in, get that system up and running, which allows the rescue process to run more efficiently because there just aren't quite as many coming in.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your time with uh, Humane Alliance and what exactly Humane Alliance was and maybe is now? Humane Alliance opened a high-volume, affordable
1: spay-neuter clinic in Asheville, North Carolina back in the 90s. And so they were an early early player in the high-volume spay-neuter field. And the conditions in Asheville, I didn't live here at the time, but the conditions here, you know, super high intake into the shelter, super high euthanasia, rates and the founder had the same kind of light bulb moment that said something's got to change this paradigm here this dynamic so humane alliance was born it opened it it started doing high volume spay neuters and learned a lot in the process and then the interesting twist was back in the two thousands early two thousands this idea of affordable spay neuter was gaining a little traction in the humane field and what happened kind of organically was other organizations were calling humane alliance to say hey you know i kind of want to open a high volume clinic what's your medical protocol or how do you do this or how do you manage the phone calls and how many appointments do you book a day just all of the bazillion of operation type questions that come up when you're starting a new business And Humane Alliance said, you know, we've been doing this for a while, so why don't we put together a kind of a recipe book or a playbook to teach other organizations how to open a high-volume spay-neuter clinic? And the, the intention was it would be just a mentoring program. Here, let us help you shorten your learning curve. Humane Alliance's intention at the time was we want as many clinics to get open, you know, to get open and be successful more quickly because that helps our collective movement. That helps the animals. And and the clinic that that I helped open in Cincinnati was part of this ever-growing mentoring program that Humane Alliance put together. It's It's a little bit like alphabet soup, but it's called NSNRT, National Spay-Neuter Response Team. Mentoring program, the clinic in Cincinnati was the 21st organization to come through the mentoring program. So that's how I was familiar with Humane Alliance. And we got open in Cincinnati and got things up and running. And uh, I had an opportunity to move to the beautiful mountains of Asheville. And I took it and then was actually working and and running that mentoring program for a couple of years with Humane Alliance. Last I heard, they're, they're up into having helped 150 plus clinics get open all around the country. So really neat program to help organizations get a high volume clinic open.
0: So it's amazing to think of the number of cats, of cats and dogs, but cats in in our world, you know, that have been assisted by the uh, Humane Alliance model.
1: Yeah, there there are lots of other groups doing high volume spay neuters So now it isn't it isn't the novelty that it was anymore because there are so many um, spay neuter resources available to to most parts of the country. There's still a few black holes in different areas of the country where more affordable spay neuter is needed, but. You know, I think the success of the no-kill movement and the changes in the no-kill movement—it's hand in hand with the rise of high-volume spay/neuter clinics and the availability of spay/neuter. Because you—you can't—you can't save them all unless you are smart about, you know, preventative medicine, which is what spay/neuter is.
0: That's interesting that you—you uh, know—you discuss the the no-kill mu- movement. For those of us that might not be familiar with it, how do you define no-kill as being? Oh gosh. Tough question. That's a little, that's a whole
1: episode probably in and of itself when I started back in the, the 90s and early 2000s in a limited ad- admission shelter, you know, I didn't have any basis for comparison. It, it, limited admission is another way of saying no kill. And, you know, we felt very strongly at that organization about being no kill. But what I didn't, what I hadn't seen yet in, in my humane career, if you call it that, was was how it fit into the bigger picture. It's, it's one thing to say, well, great, we're no kill. And, but you have to look at a community as a whole. I think back in the early days of No Kills, it was very much an us versus them. So the open admission shelters got all the flack and the vitriol and the, you know, they got all the crap and and the No Kill shelters tootled along on the high road, but it really wasn't addressing the problem as a community because no one organization is going to really it just generally takes a village to, to get to no-kill. So that was kind of the situation back when I first started, at least for the greater Cincinnati area, and what the really cool thing that has evolved. Affordable spay-neuter is around. Um, a lot of other groups have a lot of other tools in their toolkit now to get to no-kill so that it it's a more inclusive thing. You can limit the intake coming in. We've you know, got great feral freedom and great programs for TNR for community cats and million cat challenges. And so, you know, the idea of getting to no kill is a more inclusive movement now than it was back in the day and and much more achievable because of all the additional resources that communities have. There's so many successful communities that are no kill. You know, there's there's a lot of different examples to see how different communities have done it. My definition now of no-kill, I don't really even like the term no-kill, but that's more of a personal preference. My time at Asheville Humane Society, which is an open admission shelter, I got to see it firsthand. And, you know, I think it's about doing the absolute best for every animal that comes in to care for a shelter. And if that means an 85% live release rate, if that means a 90% live release rate, if that means a 95% live release rate, I think when a shelter and a community can evolve to the point where you've got the resources and the luxury of time to evaluate each animal on its merits and do the best that you can with that animal within a community and within, you know, a partnership structure, then, you know, to me, that's, that's no kill, if you want to call it that, that's, then we've done the right thing for the animals.
0: And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. The Community Cats Podcast is generously sponsored by the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, one of the nation's pioneers in successful TNR programs. In 1992, in response to a persistent feral and homeless cat population along the Merrimack River in Newburyport, MRFRS began a concerted effort to trap, sterilize, and return a colony of over 300 cats, setting up and maintaining feral feeding stations. That colony was successfully reduced to zero cats by 2008. Today, MRFRS's activities include two mobile, low-cost spay-neuter vans known as the Catmobile, an adoption program with a focus on special needs and hard-to-place cats, veterinary assistance programs for low-income individuals as well as unowned cats, and mentoring for local animal welfare organizations seeking to improve their TNR effectiveness. For more information, visit (music) www.mrfrs.org. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with uh, Two Mods?
1: So I'm very lucky. I have done sheltering, and I've done high-volume spay-neuter, and now I'm very fortunate that I am on the granting side. So Two Mods is... a private foundation. It was found by a gentleman named Dallas Pratt. And uh, we grant spay neuter grants to smaller organizations, a little more grassroots, mostly volunteer organizations in the Appalachian area. So over the years we've we've kind of honed our focus into the Appalachians because I mentioned earlier there are still some kind of black holes for spay neuter availability and, and often they exist in the general Appalachian region as an under-resourced area. For animals. So that's where we focus our funding. And we do direct spay-neuter subsidies to make it affordable to help some of these smaller groups fundraise and, and provide that service for their community.
0: So you have you seen any sort of specific impact as a result of your sort of targeted funding? So that's um, really interesting also in that
1: I'm a big fan of targeting and data. And, you know, in a world of limited financial resources... All spay neuters are good, but not all spay neuters are equal. And what I mean by that is you can alter Mrs. Smith's poodle, but if her poodle is not the animal that's contributing to overpopulation at, at the local shelter and you only got money left for one spay, you know, are you going to do the are you going to do Mrs. Smith's poodle or are you going to do a a different animal um, and have more impact at your shelter. So that was kind of my basis. I'm a big fan of, of smart spending that way. As I got into this job and into some of these rural areas in Appalachia, some areas don't have any shelter at all there there is no sheltering function some have very minimal shelters and no computer to track the data to know what's coming in or how much is coming in and so this idea of success looks different in a lot of these smaller more rural communities and that in and of itself was was really interesting for me and and kind of a oh well that makes sense and i've I, we've got a couple of Folks that we funded that are able to track data and they see the very classic graph lines. They see as their spay neuter subsidies, you know, the number of surgeries they subsidize going up, they see their intake going down and they see their euthanasias going down. So that's a kind of a classic model. I've got another community in Tennessee that measures her success because she doesn't see the stray dogs and cats. Along the the roads any longer. The in this case, the post office, the mail person used to carry dog and cat food in the back of her truck when she was delivering mail, and would stop to feed the strays. And small rural community. Uh, this woman, the, the the organization that Two Mods has funded, has done a fantastic job doing subsidy surgery. Uh, you know, spay neuter subsidies year after year after year. And the post the postal delivery person doesn't see the strays on the side of the road anymore. So. It's, it's a different measure of success, but it, very successful nonetheless. So that, that's been really interesting. For me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Th- that's interesting from my perspective too, because there are, there are definitely, um, I think islands that yep. don't touch the traditional s- statistical measurement package. Yes. Um, and we have to figure out how can we still address and create a humane community in that environment, even right. though we don't have those traditional channels of reporting available to us. So I find that, I find that interesting. I've been working in a couple of communities that have some of that, those components. Um, it's, it is interesting, right. I know it goes into that tribal knowledge kind of conversation.
1: It, it it really does, and I had to stop to think. Well, that you know, in that community, not seeing dogs and cats on the side of the road is successful. And I would love if two mods had um, slightly deeper pockets, so that we could not only provide spay-neuter subsidies, but go into a community like this and say, can we buy you some software so that you can kind of track and the spay-neuter can be slightly more targeted. Um, Some of my favorite groups are working with their local animal control Again, animal control is is a maybe one or two fenced dog pens out behind the police station. That's what it looks like, and, and they're able to go in and say, okay, not only are we going to provide spay-neuter, but what can we do to help animal control? What do you need? Do you need a doghouse? Do you need some cages to take in some cats? You know, different things like that, and these grassroots organizations are going in from a partnership mindset to say... What can I do to make your job easier yep. Um, yep. from an animal control point of view? And I, I personally love funding those kind of groups because it's, it's just, it's a, instead of criticizing that there's only <laughs> two fence pens and four cages, they're going in to help, a, a collective help for the community. And I think that kind of stuff leads to greater good for partnerships with muni- municipalities and, and areas that don't prioritize animal needs.
0: Now, if there were any folks, it sounds like two mods would be willing to accept donations or have some sort of a partnering. It, it sounds like you'd have interest in expanding your reach.
1: Absolutely. It,
0: I I would love
1: to be able to have a few more resources in, in our resources, both monetary and, and some other programs so that we can go in with these partners, um, the, the folks that we fund, these organizations, and, and say, not only can we do some spay-neuter subsidy money, but let's get a little creative and look at some other ways to provide funding. One of the cool things that I really like about 2MODs is our geography is fairly compact. Our geography, again, the Appalachians, is generally an underserved area. And one component of my job is I travel around the region and I'm meeting with these grantees directly. You know, we can have these conversations face-to-face I can see what the conditions are and um, really kind of brainstorm about different avenues for improving the humane con- conditions other than just spay-neuter. Although I'm, I'm I'm fully supportive of spay-neuter. So it's just a matter of having um, some more resources in, in the toolkit for two mods to go in and, and support a more complete pa- platform.
0: You know, filling that whole uh, toolkit right. that we re- reference and making sure that all those pieces are available in the community. And, you know, spay-neuter is a very important tool in the toolkit, but you can only be successful if there are other components there. That's- how do how can people find you if they're interested in in finding out more about you know two mods or your work <laughs> or just you know advice or whatever? I am happy to help, and the best way to reach me
1: would be through the two mods website, which is two t w o m a u d s dot org. It's a little bit of an odd name, but two mods dot org, and my contact information is there. And I welcome if any of your listeners are. Smaller organizations in the Appalachian region reach out and do it soon because I'm doing my site visits and meeting with all these groups and, and getting ready to um, put our, our funding schedule together for the year. We do that in August or September depending on just a few things.
0: So in thinking about somebody who might somebody you know younger or somebody who's just retired from their professional job, someone who was thinking about just starting out, would you have any specific advice for them? I think I would suggest volunteering is always the best way to
1: start and there's always different ways to volunteer with your local groups. That seems to make the most sense. There's always going to be opportunities to, to to get involved. It's you know, it's fostering, it's doing laundry, it's different sorts of things. And and the other bit of advice is don't be discouraged, especially if you're coming from a corporate world, jumping into a volunteering may not be Quite as organized or as um, corporate as you might expect, but it's just a matter of getting in there and doing it. Especially this time of year, fostering is a is a great way to start. From a bigger perspective, I think it's really important to understand the entire landscape. So you could volunteer with group A, and if group A does not have a good relationship with group B and there's some animosity, you're you're missing out on the ability to see how every organization fits into a humane picture for the community. Sometimes it takes someone to have that 30,000 foot perspective to be able to make make those relationships work and and bridge the gap.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: Foster. Time to foster kitten season is upon us. I I know um, down in this area, the kittens seem to all be about four to five weeks old, and they're coming into the shelters in droves. And so, if you've got a spare bathroom and a few weeks to to offer, now's the time to do it because it, it it's true across the country, and it gives the the kittens that are most vulnerable a chance to um, to get up to weight, get spayed neutered, and get through the adoption process. So that's the that's the thing to do.
0: Sounds great. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for sharing this time with me today. I appreciate it very, very much and I uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. If you email me a screenshot of your review with your name and address and your t-shirt size, I will send you a Community Cats t-shirt. The reviews really help. Thanks, everybody.